Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and work. Let's get into this week's episode. Welcome. My name is Erin Moniz, and I'm here with my co-host, Blake Dean, and you are listening to New Voices of Mutuality Matters, hosted by CBE International. And we are very excited today, friends, to host Kat Armas. She is a Cuban-American writer and podcaster from Miami, Florida. She holds a dual MDiv and MAT from Fuller Theological Seminary, where she was awarded the Frederick Buchner Award for Excellence in Writing and is currently pursuing a THM at Vanderbilt Divinity School in Nashville, where we love. Um, her first book, uh, I Will Lead the Faith, that What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength, sits at the intersection of women, decolonialism, the Bible, and Cuban identity. She also explores these topics and more on her podcast, The Protagonistas, which centers the voices of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color in theological spaces. Um, so Kat, thank you for coming on the podcast with us today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, as all of our listeners know, it is watch, reader, listen time. And so, Blake Dean, what are you watching, reading, or listening to? Okay, I'm going to keep this short, but I have a lot of feelings about what I watched. And I, I don't know if they're like positive or negative. So, there's this movie that came out a couple years ago that Aaron and I watched um, called Colossal, which starts Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis of Ted Lasso fame. And it's about her um, experience with substance misuse. But every time she stumbles on this childhood playground, a giant Godzilla-like monster attacks the city of Seoul, South Korea. Um, I don't quite know what I'm supposed to feel or think after watching it, but I have not stopped feeling nor thinking after watching it. And so that's what I've been really heady, stimulating things. What about you, Erin? Okay, I, I'm... You just really took us to a whole other place there. And I'm not even really sure how to respond, but I feel like I should respond. Oh, I should also mention, sweet listeners, that when he's talking about watching this movie with Aaron, that is his wife, Aaron, not podcast host, (laughs) Aaron. We love to just make sure there's a distinction there um, because (laughs) I I don't think I could co-sign on watching this movie. Um, But I will tell you, I've been listening to – so Slipping at Last is uh, an artist I really enjoy. And um, I was sort of introduced to him through his Enneagram album and recently downloaded an album that he did called Space. And the songs are just like Sun, Mercury, Venus, you know, so on and so forth throughout the solar system. Um, But he just has this wonderful orchestral style. And I just, Mm. I just really enjoy it. It's been bringing me a lot of joy lately. So. And fun fact, every time there's like a, I'm not a scientist, I don't know. But every time there's some significant thing happening in space, he writes a new piece of music for that. So if there's like a oh. meteor or not a meteor hopefully not a meteor um <laughs> that would be bad yeah <laughs> yeah but th- thank you for sharing that blake dean it went Sorry. very apocalyptic there we appreciate it um so <laughs> please help us cat what are you watching reading or listening to <laughs> these days well first of all i just want to say blake that colossal is that what you said it was called i yeah. love creature features and so anything with okay. monsters i'm like yes you should watch there. it you should watch it. I would love to know your thoughts. I would. Yes. I'm going to look for it tonight. Actually, when you were talking, I was like, Ooh, that sounds right up my alley. <laughs> I'm a big, yeah. Monster horror nut, but 
Um, I, I actually just finished watching The Dropout um, about Elizabeth oh, Holmes. Yeah. And then uh, I just started Impeachment about um, the Monica oh, Lewinsky. Mm, you, you saw it? Yes, yeah. I loved it. Yeah, I listened to the the podcast, which I think it's, you know, they made the or the show from the podcast. But um, yeah, so The Dropout was done so well. I mean, I listened to the podcast mm. as well, but um, Amanda Seyfried does an incredible job as Elizabeth Holmes. So I was very impressed That's by that. That's a crazy story. Yes, it is incredible. It's just bonkers. Incredible story. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, now to what we're actually here to talk about, which is your book, which, by the way... I, I really enjoyed getting to read it. Yes. Um, and one of my favorite pastimes is not only purchasing um, new books for myself, but also making my library purchase them. So oh, I yay. made my library purchase your book. So hopefully some Thank other you. people get to read them. Um, yeah. And I love the central question of your book. Well, maybe a central question of your book, which is what if the greatest theologians the world has ever known are those whom the world wouldn't consider theologians at all, mm-hmm. which feels very Jesus to me, um, <laughs> but also very countercultural to our like white evangelical Christian culture, which right. I think is telling and we'll probably get to explore that tension mm-hmm. um, as we talk about your book. Something I loved and when, when learning for the first time, um, honestly, about an abolita theology or theologies mm-hmm. um, is um, how um, culturally um, specific of an interpretation it is, how culturally um, intentionally tailored it is, but also how universal it is, how right. it sits within, you, you talk about how it sits within um, the cloud of witnesses. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could introduce the idea of Abolita theology and maybe hit on that cloud of witnesses piece, because um, I thought that was something that I was really, that really shifted my mode of seeing what Abolita theology is, is doing. Yeah, no, thank you for pointing that out, um, because I, as I was thinking through this book and sort of just imagining and and trying to put words to what I, you know, describe in, as an abuelita theology, it is something that I found to be so personal, right? I mean, grandmothers and, and your ancestors and the people that you come from and whom raised you, right, is such a personal thing. Um, but at the same time, you know, it is something, like you said, universal. I mean, so many people mm. um, have the, these sort of relationships, whether biological or spiritual, right? We have spiritual grandmothers mothers and and ancestors or or biological ones that have really shaped and formed us. And so that was something, um, you know, particularly within marginalized communities or immigrant communities where, you know, like my grandmother, she is the backbone to my culture, right? Mm -hmm. She is what connects me to uh, Cuba, essentially, right? And so there's so much there. Um, But yeah, I, as I was, you know, thinking through this, I felt like, especially in regard to the cloud of witnesses, you know, I 100% 100% sit on the back, but excuse me, sit on the shoulders of so many of the women who mm. came before me. And that was something that um, really stood out to me in the beginning of, you know, in the inception of this idea. And it was sort of this idea of research grief, right? And, and I was working through, and I talk about this in mm. the first chapter of my book, but, um, you know, I was in a women in church history class and I was learning about all of these incredible women throughout history and, um, you know, all the wonderful things that they did and, and the way that they were silenced and the way that they were yeah. suppressed and oppressed. And, um, but they were all European women, you know, which is great. And they mm. made such a big difference. But I thought, mm. well, what about mm. Cuban women? You know, what about mm. the women um, whose shoulders, you know, I stand mm-hmm. on, the one who who's shaped my understanding of the world, who I may have never met, um, but who, you know, um, mm. who's, yeah, whose DNA and sort of spiritual D- DNA uh, lives within me. Yeah. And mm. um, so that's when I just began sort of just investigating um 
the, the history of colonization in the Caribbean, which is yeah. specific, you know, to obviously me and, and, and my family and and it became very personal, right? It wasn't just, we've all heard of this idea of, of colonialism. We've all heard of, you know, this imperial Christ and, and all this, all the things, but yeah, it just became very personal. I realized in that moment, like this lives in my body, right? And not just in yeah. my body, but in my mother's body and in my grandmother's body and in my great grandmother's body and, you know, and it just yeah. keeps going. And so that was something um, that I, I felt like you know, I need to investigate these these wounds, right? These generational mm. and colonial wounds that live within me. Um, yeah, and then also just the beauty that um, has been passed down, you know, despite the the history of such, you know, toxic theologies, um, just the strength and the courage and the beauty and, you know, so much of what women um, have done and passed on to me. So, yeah. yeah. I love particularly in that Cloud of Witnesses piece how when you kind of privilege um, looking at um, at the at the lineage of the women that come before you, even as you read scripture, it comes to life. I love when you pointed out in Second Timothy, and I mm-hmm. it was funny. So I was re- I read that part of your book, and then um, the Daily Office Lectionary actually had me in the first chapter oh, of Second Timothy the next day, and so then it was like you, and then you see uh, like Paul talking about. Um, the sincere faith that first lived in Timothy's yeah. grandmother Lois and mother Eunice, right? And I and I I just found that to be such a um, a beautiful, important backbone oh, of yeah. what's going on, even in the pages of scripture. That because of my particular um, cultural um, formation and, and individualism, I, I I didn't notice, and right. that separates me from the text actually. Yeah, and, and I, think- I so I appreciated that. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, oh, but good. no, I think that that's, that's huge because, that, I mean, for me, that was it was the same thing. Like, I had never noticed those passages, right? Those passages yeah. are never really spoken about. Um, you know, people love to talk about First Timothy, uh, but definitely not about, you know, the, the way that women are, you know, celebrated in yeah. First Timothy. That's right. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so that was something when I discovered that, I, I said, wait a minute, you know, grandmother theology, abuelita theology is right here. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul takes the time to literally name them, you know, and as I mentioned, the book sort of canonized them, you know, as you will or whatever. Um, But yeah, he names them and honors them and says, hey, Timothy, the faith that you have, it's there because of your grandmother and your mother, Mm -hmm. you know, and I wish we knew more about them. I wish we knew about their faith, like what made them faithful, you know, like what sort of, you know, what did they pass on to Timothy? But of course, you know, the Bible is a book written by men and for men. And so that's why, you know, what I wanted to do in Abuelita Faith is just, just draw out these characters that might be in a line or two, right? We have like one little line yeah. about, you know, Mama, I like to say, you know, grandmother, Mama, Eunice and, and Lois. And um, But ask questions, right? Let our theological imagination yeah. sort of run wild and just wonder and imagine and dream um, because we're not going to get it from the Bible, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's there for a reason. And I think that we're yeah. given the permission to sort of dream and imagine and wonder. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. Thank you so much for, for that. I was, I I came in and I wasn't even sure really, really what, what to expect when I started reading the book. And, and as I went through it, I thought this has so many layers to it. I love how you um, keep talking about like your personal story and how you weave that in. But we also learn so much about history and geography, about the people who have shaped you. And then women in scripture, so 
many women in scripture, but we'll, we'll get to that in, in a second. <laughs> I want to zero in on something that um, that you wrote about post-colonialism. And, and, and listeners, when you read this book, and you should go out and buy this book and read it, um, it is uh, it is a wonderful sort of journey through an understanding of post-colonialism and how that works in our theology, how that works in us, how that's a part mm. of people's stories. And it is, for, for many of us, for me, it's a it, part of my own learning experience. Um, and so you write, uh, post-colonialism deals with colonization or colonized peoples, focusing on the way in which literature by the colonized culture distorts the experiences and realities of colonized peoples, as well as assumes their inferiority. Mm. And I wanted to hone in on this because... Um, Having this podcast where we where we discuss gender theology and the in the way um, this has worked throughout the history of the church, this concept of certain people being assumed inferior um, to others can often be dismissed as this sort of a archaic possibility. Like, oh, we've grown out of that. Nobody thinks that anymore. Those are we have Twitter. No right. one can be assumed <laughs> right. As no, no sort of enlightened Western right. thinker would ever consider someone inferior. And yet, we've had experts on this podcast who reveal that the roots of the superiority inferiority dynamic have not fully gone away, but in right. fact have informed our current reluctance to recognize racism and sexism. Right. Um, it's never really truly been recognized or repented of. We just sort of we sort of reframed it or moved past it. And so our modern, and I'm doing air quotes here, modern dominant cultures um, never dream of labeling anyone as inferior. Right. And they often disconnect their views of women in the church from these ideas. However, um, and you do this really beautifully in your book, um, can you explain how your own research and the um, Abuelita faith speak to this deceptive pervasiveness of these distortions? Or in other words, how is colonization and the threads of this superiority inferiority dynamic still distorting our theology? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I, I think there's a lot of ways that you can look at this idea of, you know, decolonizing or, you know, decolonizing our faith or our theologies or, all, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I, in, in my book, I like to look at it from the perspective of knowledge, right? Um, who is wise, right? And who gets to say who is wise, right? Um, because for so long, we, the dominant culture has labeled, you know, what is wisdom, who gets to say what is wise and and who, you know, like I said, who is wise. And, and you know, that obviously centers around the, the white elite academy, right? The white male elite academy. Um, and so something that I, I, I want to wrestle with is exactly that. Like, where do we get at wisdom, right? Um, what are alternate ways of being and knowing in the world from which people make meaning of their existence, right? Um, and so the notion of inferiority in, uh, in, in relation to wisdom is, is, yeah, I mean, people who aren't formally educated in, in whatever, you know, the dominant culture might deem is, is formal, right? Um, mm. And so I want to, I, I wrestle with that. Well, well, where does wisdom live, you know? And mm. as we look mm -hmm. in the Bible, I mean, wisdom lives in our bodies, right? Wisdom lives, and you see so many of the women in scripture, how they used, um, and women throughout history, right, use their bodies and use these alternate forms of wisdom that dominant culture might deem inferior, right, um, as you know, going back to like my grandmother, you know, my grandmother was never formally educated. I mean, I don't think yeah. she received more than like an elementary, you know, uh, education, um, but she was wise, right? She she held so much wisdom um, from the way that she served and the way that she engaged her hands and the way that she provided for our family and the way that she um yeah, raised us, right? Um, and we see that throughout mm -hmm. history, right? Women have um, 
this this wisdom that is beyond you know what a seminary what the academy can teach and so i think that um in this notion of of decolonizing um and i do want to name i know that the the actual post-colonial theory and decolonial theory are two different things but when we're just thinking you know in a general sense of decolonizing um i think it it you know, it's important to, to go, you know, back to the roots and ask like, well, what is wisdom? You know, cause the Bible talks a lot about it and the yeah. wisdom that we get in scripture is nothing like, you know, the, the sort of wisdom that um, we're seeking out today, you know? And so, yeah. you know, when you say yeah. people might not think that way, but we do, I mean, we're shaped by that. Right. I mean, I have multiple degrees and, you know, so yeah. I obviously, yeah. you know, I fall under this model of Western, you know, wisdom, but um, but yeah, and so I think yeah. that that if we just kind of trouble that question and wrestle with it and are willing to seek out wisdom um, that doesn't look like what the dominant culture says wisdom is supposed to look like, then I think that we'll we'll really find wisdom, right? Yeah. In so many different yeah. places. And, mm-hmm. and that so um, rhymes and harmonizes and echoes with the words of Jesus and even the testimony of Paul about what wisdom is, right? It's, right. It, it, it can be what is deemed to be right. inferior or less than or even foolish. Right, right, but, yeah. But that's where it's to be found, right? And I, that's what I was so... Um, and you tell so many stories, both from Scripture, but also from um, different points in, in history about um, women and grandmothers and mothers raising their children um, in faith in what may be deemed informal ways, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but that are impactful and beautiful and Christ-like. And right. I, I so, I so appreciate that. And I think that's, um, really remarkable. I'm particularly grateful for your chapter. Um, the, uh, forgive me if I mispronounce this, the <laughs> Mujeres of Exodus. Mujeres. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and in it, you write, quote, the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt begins with a desperate mother and includes a group of women whose resistance efforts served as the backbone of liberation. Um, And I think this, this kind of hits on that wisdom living in bodies and within, um, within embodied theology. So could you talk about maybe how a reading from the lens of um, Apolita theologies reads the text of Exodus, or maybe this particular part of the text of Exodus, maybe differently than a dominant culture's reading? Yeah. So, you know, when we think of the story of Exodus, we think of Moses, right, right off the bat. Um, but everything leading up to Moses are just women who um, engaged in, c- in civil disobedience, right? Women who, yeah. um, what I love about Moses's mother, uh, Jochebed, is not only did she, like, you know, engage in civil disobedience and go against what the, what the Pharaoh had said in order to save her son's life, but she used, like, the again, the wisdom of the land and the wisdom of her hands and Mm. she built. And I just love that detail because it's, you know, it's such a beautiful detail of how she, you know, she created a basket out of the reeds and she, you know, um, how did she know to do that? Right. Um, Of course, you know, that was, I'm sure Mm. a a cultural thing, but I just love that from the very, you know, beginning, we get this picture of just a mother with embodied knowledge, right. A mother that is willing to do the deeply right thing, even though it looked like, you know, what was um, against what, she was supposed to do, right? It was the deeply right thing. And I think that that's what um, God calls us to. And God calls so many of of the people in scripture to, right? To Mm. do the deeply right thing, despite what the dominant culture, what power, what empire might say. Um, And so I just love that, right? So we have have, uh, Moses's mother, and then we have the midwives. And something that I loved in in my research was 
this, you know, midwifery in the ancient world mm. was like a spiritual, like they were spiritual leaders and they were considered mm. like spiritual healers. They weren't, mm. you know, quote unquote, just midwives, even though that is incredible. <laughs> I just gave birth recently. So trust me, I'm like, <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, they were, you know, we, I mean, and again, we don't have this full picture usually because, you know, we read a Bible that was written by men for men through the lens of men. Usually we're taught it. Um, right. but, but midwifery was, was spiritual and it was a, a you know, a, a sort of leadership and, and a healing role in the ancient world. And so we have this picture of these two incredible women, you know, um, who deliver Moses and, you know, who, who do all, or, or excuse me, they didn't deliver Moses, but they, you know, work to save Moses and all of these things. A different kind of delivery. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we also have, you know, uh, Pharaoh's daughter and, and just so many incredible women who work together to not just save Moses, but the entire nation of Israel, right? Like they completely yeah. changed the course of history. And that's something that also I see so much throughout scripture is how, um, and I know that you had mentioned this before uh, we started recording, Blake, but the idea of Ritzvah, right? Like she, mm. what I love about her story is that it's so quick, right? Like we don't, it's, yeah. she's just kind of like a passing detail. But what so many folks miss is that she literally changed the course of what was happening. You know, yeah. there was a famine yeah. and because of her, you know, because of her persistent um, protest, literally God sent rain and the entire nation of Israel yeah. was able to eat, you know, because yeah. she yeah. protested and she, because she put and, her body on the line. Sorry. Yeah. And used her body. Exactly. I think that, I, that's what's so remarkable. Exactly. Like in that connection is like, it wasn't just like holding a sign. It right. was, I'm going to stay out here right. like, with my actual body. Yeah. And that's the, um, this idea of an embodied wisdom, yeah. right? Like she used her yeah. body to change the course of history. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I thank you for talking about the Exodus mm. and Rispa. I, I think the thing that's so remarkable and the thing that I think I learned from you in your book, um, even more so, was that when we lose um, these key actors, these key players who are using their bodies and their wisdom um, and being transgressive in mm. that deeply right thing, um, we actually lose huge pieces of what's huge. happening in liberation and redemption. Yeah. Right. And because we can, without those pieces, we lose the, we lose the danger of it. Yeah. Right. We yeah. lose the, <laughs> the scandalous um, nature of it. The scandal of holiness mm. in that. Right. right? The, um, and so I appreciate that. And I think your book does um, such a wonderful job bringing those examples, both from the pages of scripture, from the pages of your own story and from yeah. um, the hidden histories among us. Thank you so yeah. much. Now, friends, we're going to take just a quick commercial break so you can learn about an important resource coming uh, from our, our parent group, CBE International. So we'll be back in just a moment. Registration is now open for CBE's 2022 International Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. Join us in person August 5th through 7th as we explore the fullness of Galatians 3.28 beside leaders from around the world. Be a part of the conversation on women, race, and ethnicity. Register now before April 30th to receive the early bird pricing of $249. Visit CBE's website to register and see information on the event schedule, lodging, speakers, and sponsorship opportunities. We hope to see you there this August as we explore the fullness of Galatians 3.28. All right, welcome back, everyone. And speaking of CBE, um, Kat, you recently wrote uh, an article 
for for CB's Priscilla Papers, uh, Yahweh and Marginalization. Um, Blake, would you like to? I know you had some thoughts about oh, yeah. that article. So I had, I actually, I had, um, I knew your book was coming out, or it had just come out, but I hadn't got my hands on it yet, and I stumbled into this article, which I think is a really, it's, um, I mean, a cousin to the work that you're doing, and maybe a good introduction to the work you do in your longer work. Um, but I love particularly your attention in the paper on um, on Israel's widows and that poor marginalized women. Um, function as the backbones of faith or even as priestesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, within a dominant culture that is so overly specialized and expertise, this idea sounds radical, as mm-hmm. with what we were talking about earlier, right? The embodied wisdom um, makes us a little uncomfortable because it doesn't fit our categories right. of um, kind of specialization or expertise. But it's deeply resonant with the words of Scripture, I think, as you as you pull out. Um, could you talk about Scripture's portrayal of widows mm-hmm. and how that connects to this idea of an abuelita theology and mm-hmm. maybe, like, what that means for us now? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, widows in the Bible are it's such an interesting category, um, particularly because we have in throughout history, we've had sort of this image of what a widow is, right? A widow mm. is vulnerable and a widow is poor and a widow is, mm. you know, all these sorts of things, right? All these things that, um, and I mean, God even says, you know, take care of the widows and, you know, yeah. and of course, because they were, they were vulnerable, you know, when it came uh, to not having, you know, a, a male to uh, protect them and, you know, to support them and all those things. Um but if we look at the story of widows throughout the Bible, um, God paints a very interesting picture of widows. Like widows are tenacious, mm. right? Like I love yeah. the story, um, the the story that Jesus tells of the widow who's not knocking on the door uh, on the judge's door and demanding justice. Um, yeah. You know, I know many people have have pointed this out, but the words that the judge uses, or yeah, the judge uses is that he's afraid that the widow's going to give him a black eye. Like literally like the literal, <laughs> it, it says like, I'm worried she's going to give me wow. a black eye. Um, and it's this <laughs> idea, you know, and it's, it's super shocking, you know, it would have been yeah. to obviously the, the original hearers of this, but it would have been super shocking because you imagine this widow to be this poor and vulnerable person. And then all of a sudden you have this judge, right. Who's saying like, you know, I'm just going to grant her justice because I'm, re- I'm honestly afraid she's going to give me a black eye. Like she's going <laughs> to punch me, you know? And I think that that is the most incredible thing that Jesus would paint a picture of a widow as tenacious mm. and a widow mm-hmm. as, you know, demanding, um, her yeah. rights, right. Like a, a widow coming yeah. to a judge and, um, and, and again, we see that, you know, I talk about in my book, I talk about the story of Tabitha as well. You know, she mm. um, is someone who she dies, right? And she's called on to be resurrected, which that in and of itself is very interesting. Like there's not that many people in the New Testament who are resurrected. Like besides Jesus, right. there are like two or three, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. but she's one of them, right? And so that, yeah. as I was mentioning earlier, like what makes our, you know, like what questions can we ask and how can we let our theological imagination soar? And so that's the first question I want to ask, like why this woman, you know, why Tabitha? Mm. Why is she resurrected? And what I love is that we know nothing about Tabitha other than she's called a disciple, other than she's resurrected, but she was clearly so prominent and such a, you know, Mm -hmm. faithful disciple and so prominent in the community that she is called on to be resurrected uh, or Peter is called on to resurrect her. And all that we know about her is that she made tunics and she 
sewed and she made clothes for the widows in her community, right? The widows are the ones by her bedside saying, look what she made for us. And I think that that also paints another picture of widows that is just so um, incredible, right? Like we have this woman who isn't talked about as having, you know, a husband or anything. So a lot of uh, scholars have sort of thought that she probably is a widow herself, you know, and she's taking care of the very group of people that God continuously, you know, calls God's people to take care of. Um, And it is just, you know, many folks have called her a sort of community organizer because she has, you know, completely changed this, this community and this group of people. I mean, she is so prominent called a disciple um, and it is directly connected to the notion of widows, right. Um, Through this woman who is just, again, you know, providing and serving and um, doing all sorts of things that, you know, God calls God's people to do and she's doing it. And if we read in Acts, you know, a few chapters before that, you have that whole debacle, you know, with the Greek speaking Jews and mm-hmm. and they're not taking care of the widows. And, you know, there's this, this whole thing going on. And um, yeah, so here you have Tabitha just like doing the thing, you know, when like everyone <laughs> else is fighting about it, you know? Um, but yeah, so I, I love the, the, when we really look at the, you know, the category of widows, just how subversive um, they really are in scripture and how God just um, really loves to, to throw, you know, these stereotypes on their heads. Oh, gosh. I, I found your book so refreshing and challenging and insightful, but also personal, but also you see your expertise really coming out. There's mm-hmm. there's so much in your book. And I was just after just chapter after chapter, I just found myself going, oh, my gosh, here's a, there's another thing she's bringing in. She's she's breaking down, uh, you know, current events and helping us see things. It just there's so much in this book that when when you read other books, they just take one or two of the things that, that you do so beautifully all woven together um, in this. And so I just want to say to our Thank listeners, because um, we have we have a group of, of listeners who are always trying to, to sort of answer the question, is God for women? And how is God for women and men on journey together in the gospel? And how do we understand these things? And intersectionality is, is is such an important uh, aspect to this. Um, we have we have other uh, wonderful podcast co-hosts that are that are working through this um, uh, as well. And and your book is such a wonderful uh, contribution to this discussion. So I want to so just sort of uh, tee up our listeners because we want them to go get the book and we want yeah. them to go read it. And this podcast uh, is airing around the same time as the uh, Spanish. Um, oh. Uh, printing of your your book is oh, being made awesome. available, yeah, so, so we great. want we want to direct our our listeners to that as well. But um, but as we wrap up here, because as much as I, there's so many things I still want to talk about, but we're, we're we're running out of time. But I want to give you an opportunity. We always love to have our guests talk about um, just what you're doing, what projects you're doing, where you are, where our listeners can find you and support you. Um, and so tell us a little bit about this is your time to sort of sound off and and let <laughs> us know how we can how where we can find you and how. We we can support you. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for those encouraging words. Um, mm. Yeah. Uh, it was a lot of, you know, a lot of fun, but a lot of hard work to, to tease out all of those things. But, um, yeah. you know, I'm just so thankful that that it spoke to you and and um, that you would invite me here. Um, so right now I'm actually working on my second book um, with Brazos Press and uh, it's called Sacred Belonging, a 40-day devotional on the liberating heart of scripture. And so we want to re- reclaim the devotional space, you know. Um, <laughs> Indeed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We want to make uh, devotionals that are 
just challenging and interesting and deep. And um, so that's what I'm hoping to do with this, uh, <laughs> with this new book. But yeah, so I'll be looking at, um, you know, different ways to reflect on the Bible, uh, focusing on creation, the body, uh, the feminine um, and wisdom, you know, alternate forms of wisdom. And so, fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think it'll be, it's, it's been fun to write. Um, so yeah, you can, you know, follow me on social media, just cat underscore Armas, A-R-M-A-S. And also just at my website, just any, you know, information you might need on my book or where to purchase it and all of that. And also my podcast, um, the protagonistas, if you want to yes. listen to that. I love your podcast, by the way. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> yes. We, yeah. And I mean, as soon as we saw the name of it, we were like, we must download this immediately. We must listen to it. This is, this is fantastic. Um, but, uh, but thank you so much for just sharing so much of yourself through all of this content. We're, we're very excited to hear about this, this new book. And, um, and we'd like to just say thank you again, Kat, for coming um, on the podcast. And uh, listeners, make sure you go follow her on social media and pick up um, I Believe to Faith in English or in Spanish. Uh, yeah. Listen to her podcast, uh, Protagonistas, and be on the lookout for more more coming from her. We will have links to all of these in the show notes. And so we want you to, to go there and find her and support her. And we'd like to say thank you for joining us today. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe uh, to the podcast so that we can hear weekly from our co-hosts and other themes as we develop content on gender theology for the gospel empowerment of men and women. And be sure to follow CBE International on Facebook and Twitter. You should also go to their website at www.cbeinternational.org for even more content. Subscribe to their blog, magazine, and academic journal. Watch videos and listen to audio of past conferences and events. And you should go visit their bookstore where you can find a ton of talented authors and subjects that will enrich your faith and equip you to use your God-given talents and leadership and service to the gospel for all, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or class. And we would like to thank Landon, our support tech, and the team at CBE International that make this podcast possible. I am Erin Monez with my co-host Blake Dean. We are Mutuality Matters. Thanks for listening. Looking for more information about CBE and our mission for biblical equality? Then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.